Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. My special thanks go out to Wellington Management for sponsoring this miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Wellington Management serves as an asset manager and trusted advisor to clients representing more than $1 trillion in assets worldwide. Wellington has explored long-term sustainability issues since the 1970s and continues this practice today through internal research, engagement, and its innovative climate research initiative with top-ranked think tank Woods Hole Research Center. Wellington's investors strive to assess investments holistically through the triangulation of insights across equity, fixed income, and ESG research. The firm's sustainable investing practice also features market-leading impact, stewardship, and climate capabilities. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. In January, James Aitken told me, It doesn't matter what you think about ESG. The clamor will only increase. Fund flows will accelerate. And we need to set our cynicism aside and be mindful of the consequences. It's going to be with us for a long time to come. Ever since, I've grown increasingly curious about the megatrend of sustainable investing. Climate change dominated the discussion at Davos a few weeks after, and social issues about the treatment of workers are front and center since the onset of COVID-19. This miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is my effort to learn alongside you through conversations with serious, passionate practitioners in the field. For the next month, you'll hear conversations twice a week in a familiar style and format, all focused on this important investment area. My guest on today's show is Lishan Ma, the head of Impact Investing Research at Cambridge Associates. Lishan developed an early interest in the climate growing up in a coal-dependent city in China. He began focusing on sustainable investing over a decade ago and leads Cambridge Associates' work with its 150 clients focused on the space. Our conversation provides an allocator's overview of sustainable investing. We start with Lishan's path and turn to how interested investors go about creating and implementing sustainable investment strategies. Along the way, we touch on manager selection, portfolio integration, investment opportunities and risks, and the implementation of sustainable investing concepts across the rest of Cambridge Associates activities. I want to take a quick sec and remind you of our premium service and free mailing list. You can support the show, access the entire library of transcripts, and a few other special nuggets that come up from time to time. You can also sign up to our mailing lists of a small selection of the best content we see. 
Both are available on buttons at the top of the homepage at the website, capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Please enjoy the second episode in Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, my conversation with Lishan Ma. Lishan, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Ted, for having me on the show. Why don't we start with your path that led to your interest and current role in this space? So it's kind of counterintuitive that my original motivation for really getting into the environmental sustainability area is actually related to coal. I grew up in China, mainland China, in the early to mid-80s. And at the time, coal was a rationed commodity by the central government. And obviously, living in a what is now a small city in China of only 1.4 million people, which in the U.S. would be probably the seventh or eighth largest city in the U.S., we were dependent on coal for survival, both for heating, electricity, but also for cooking our food. And I actually remember going to our rationed warehouse, allocated warehouse from the government with my grandfather, retrieving our coal, taking it back to our apartment, and my grandmother would actually use the coal to cook our dinner. So I actually depended on coal for survival. But as I've gone back to visit family every few years, just seeing the environmental degradation from the massive increase in the use of coal and other fossil fuels, and just seeing the degradation and seeing the health effects on society has made me realize that, wow, like there is a cost to all of this development, which obviously has taken a lot of people out of poverty and really expanded the middle class, but it all does come at a cost. And so that was one of the major reasons why I was really focused on the environmental issues of our time. And even in high school, I went to boarding school in Northeastern Pennsylvania here in the U.S., another coal hotbed in the U.S., at least back in the day. And I actually, for one of my Earth Day projects, made a video documentary on coal mine drainage and filming the acid mine drainage, which is all like orange streams. You can see right in people's backyards and people who I was friends with in high school didn't even know that this was happening in their backyards. So making that awareness known to my local community was also a very important step in my journey to what I do now. Now on the social side, it's funny because I did get some a view on social inequality after moving to the U.S. as a first-generation immigrant. And both my parents were actually professional musicians back in China, but when they moved to the U.S., they quickly realized that it wasn't a very practical profession. So my father worked in restaurants, he washed dishes, he painted houses, he ultimately ended up in manufacturing. My mother gave up her career, even though she got a master's degree in music theory and ended up being a senior clerk, a secretary basically, in a special education school in upstate New York. And I remember going to school first grade and being told that I was part of the free lunch program. And some people had to pay a quarter and other people had to pay a dollar ten. So that was really my first real understanding and glimpse into the hierarchies and the segmentation right, in a very clear way that I was a free lunch kid. Eventually, when my dad got a raise, I was a quarter kid, meaning I paid a quarter for my lunches. But I always wanted to be that dollar ten kid. I wanted to earn and pay for my own lunch. And ultimately, that gave me more motivation to try to really embed into my work a view of the social and income inequality framework that is very relevant to what we do today. And how did that path take you through your working career? Yeah, so after college, I ended up working on Wall Street in the both the boom and bust time of the financial crisis leading up to the financial crisis, so 06 to 09, and really seeing the excesses during the boom times and seeing the despair and the irrational behavior right after the crisis just made me realize that, wow, like markets are highly inefficient. They are not pricing in externalities and these systemic risks. There's a lot of just excessive risk-taking and 
misaligned incentives. And that experience has also guided me towards pursuing a path where I feel like I can be very aligned with the clients, with other stakeholders and colleagues in achieving a common purpose, which is ultimately to drive long-term financial returns, but also embedding in there a very strong lens on sustainable growth and sustainable planet and society. So that led me to Cambridge Associates right after business school, where I've been at Cambridge Associates for the past almost nine years. And it's just a very special place. We don't sell any products. We work with our clients solely to help them with their financial objectives and long-term returns. But what we're really lucky in doing, especially, is working with very mission-aligned philanthropic organizations and families to help them do more good in the world. So it's a really special place, and I feel very fortunate to be in this position. You mentioned the word sustainable, and I know that there's different lingo that people throw around when they're talking about this space. There's sustainable investing, there's ESG, there's impact investing. What language do you use and how do you differentiate between these labels? I bet, Ted, if you asked every person on in the show in the series, you would probably get a slightly different answer or a very nuanced answer. My view of this is, let's start with sustainable investing, which I think is the broadest way to define it. Take the traditional investing framework. You're looking at the world. You're trying to analyze certain factors, metrics, usually financial factors, right? What sustainable investing really allows you to do is take a little bit of a wider aperture, let's say a wide angle lens, and you're trying to capture more information, more material information that's not historically embedded in traditional investment analysis, whether that's analysis on environmental externalities, carbon emissions, the effects you have on local communities, employees, on vendors and suppliers. You're taking all of that information and some of it is relevant, some of it is not relevant. And what you're really trying to do is just take those additional signals and find the ones that are material to financial returns and risk metrics and embedding that into your view. And how you navigate is all in the details and very skill dependent, right? Some people can take that wider aperture and in practice, add a ton of value to portfolios. And some, and we'll talk about this maybe later on, say that they're looking at the world in a sustainable way, but may not be able to translate that into true value added in terms of results. So I think it's just a wider lens to allow investors to navigate risks and opportunities. The idea of sustainable investing has been around for a little while, but there's no doubt that in the last year or so, there's been this surge of interest. Why do you think that's happening? Yeah, I think we are in a moment where there is just so much interest and awareness driven by the systemic challenges that we face as a planet, as a society. And of course, in this current crisis, from a health perspective, right, there are these large systemic risks that one has to take into consideration. And I would say that the issues of climate change, of inequality, are real and deep challenges that will face us, not in just the next few quarters or years, but I would say for our next few generations. And if we don't act urgently and prudently, right, we are talking about long-term asset pools for universities, for foundations, for multi-generational families, for long-term oriented pensions. We're not just looking at the returns for the next three to five years. We're looking at how do we preserve value for the next few decades and into perpetuity? And how do we enhance value along the way by having this lens around systemic risk? And I think people are gaining awareness of those issues. And I think that they're also perhaps frustrated by some lack of progress, whether it's by government or traditional philanthropy, even though I think we have made in many corners of the world progress in terms of policy and in civil society, making sure that we're moving the right path. But I think there's always more to be done. And asset owners realize that markets can be a very powerful tool to affect change. 
So whether it's asset owners on the family side, you have next generation family members agitating for change and embedding these layers of sustainability into investing. Or you have, in terms of endowments foundations, you have stakeholders like students, faculty, donors, also engaging with the investment teams and the investors to add in these issues and risk factors into their decision-making. So I think all of those factors are leading to groundswell of interest, as you talked about, and we're seeing it across the board. At Cambridge Associates, we now have over 150 clients embedding and implementing broadly sustainable investing in some fashion, and we're only seeing that number grow over time. When the 151st client comes to you and says, wow, this is really interesting, I'm excited, I want to incorporate this into what I'm doing, how do you take that and turn it into an actionable strategy for that client? I think this is where having worked with so many clients who have done this in some way, there are some really early movers in the field that we've been very fortunate to have worked with and helped along the way. And obviously some newcomers, right? And seeing the best practices instituted throughout that time, seeing kind of the pitfalls as well, we can really have an engaged conversation with that, let's say 151st client that's asking the questions, that's expressing interest to really say, okay, what are you truly, in terms of your mission, what are you about as an organization or as a family? What is the true north of your organization? Whether you are a climate change or environmental focused foundation, which would make it pretty easy to then craft a portfolio around that core mission. Or if you are a foundation that's trying to prioritize the well-being of a certain community, right? Let's say it's a region. How do we have a holistic strategy around sustainability and impact that would make sense for that particular mission? So just like any early conversation with a client, you're talking about not just your risk and return objectives, but also your impact objectives. And so we have a framework at Cambridge Associates where we call it the three Ps. So it's purpose, priorities, and principles. First, you have to understand, again, the purpose of the organization or the entity that you're working with through a lot of engaged discussion. And then priorities is where you have to map the purpose to certain themes, whether it's more environmentally focused or socially focused around education or workforce development, for example. But of course, we all know that they're interlinked and we have to find the overlap and the intersections to make it all work holistically. And finally, the principles, which are the defining characters for how you build a portfolio, how much illiquidity risk can you tolerate, what is the comfort level of the organization in going into certain asset classes or certain regions. So once you've worked with someone and there's some definition of the purpose and the priorities, and now you're going to start to implement what have you seen as the path that any sort of individual client takes from the interest to something that's part of their portfolio over time? So I think in, as in any type of vesting, it's easy to have a plan, right, from the get-go and then try to implement that plan. And we all know that it never goes the way you originally intend to or, or plan to. So our advice to clients is you have to be adaptive. And yes, it's very important to have the compass kind of set from the beginning, but you also have to iterate and you also have to experiment a little bit and start in a certain direction. Let's say you feel like you have very high conviction in this theme, right? Around, let's say, water and agricultural efficiency, or you have a very strong thesis around education and workforce development, right? Let's find some high conviction investment opportunities and managers that really fit into those themes and start to learn, right? Because you don't really learn about these issue areas and the best practices until you actually start doing it in some capacity. And we find that those clients who start off with an eye towards fully integrating the portfolio in a sustainability lens, but are pragmatic in how they start and how they evolve that approach. I think that approach works really well because you're learning as you go and you layer in high conviction managers and you build upon those high conviction managers, you find more of them through your expanded networks. And before you know it, you can 
have a larger and larger part of your portfolio that reflect the original intention, which is to embed sustainability into the portfolio. So inevitably, when someone gets started, as you said, they're not as informed as they may be down the road. What happens in those instances where the first step creates this divide between returns and mission in that maybe the performance of whatever they invest in isn't quite as good. Maybe they didn't pick the right manager. They didn't go about it the right way, but it's not quite as good as what they might have achieved elsewhere in the capital markets. How does that tension get resolved in the early going? I would say this is the same with any area of investing where you're going into a either a newer asset class or you're picking a new manager, right? There are bound to be successes and bound to be mistakes and failures. And I think what's really important is to not discard the entire approach because of any early mistakes, but rather really incorporate those lessons learned and not have a A-B test, if you will, from the very beginning. And as we know, especially in private markets, it takes time for your thesis to be proven out and be validated, often many years, for a full cycle to reflect this thesis or this investment opportunity. So I do think that embedding the early lessons learned into your approach as you go is a really important best practice for any institution, any family moving in this direction. But I also highlight that through the successes, and there are many, right, if you're and, and we're seeing in this environment, the sustainable managers who are focused on high quality, durable cash flows have stayed really resilient in the market volatility that we've seen. So of course, it's very time period dependent. It is subject to style, favorability, whether it's growth or value, quality, private versus public. And you have to maintain conviction in your thesis because you do have to take a long-term view and abide by that thesis over time. So you've mentioned both public and private markets and attaching that to a very long-term view. Do you have a bias in how you've worked with clients on one over the other in public versus private? I don't have a clear bias. I would say that I have worked more in the private markets at Cambridge Associates with, with clients. So my familiarity with private market opportunities is certainly higher. But we have clients that are approaching full portfolios across different asset classes. We're finding really strong, high conviction opportunities in global equities, for example, that have very high concentration and high sustainability oriented approaches. And they have added a lot of value to portfolios because, again, they're focused on that durable cash flow piece. They're focused on differentiated intellectual property that can withstand cycles. They're more or less focused on more capital efficient business models. So I think through cycles, those have held up really well and have added value. And on the private market side, you can be a little bit more perhaps thematic and pick sector specialists around, let's say, clean energy, food and agriculture, education and workforce development, health and wellness. And you can build a basket of these really expert specialists to address certain areas of the market and find those solutions to real world challenges that we face as a planet and as a society. Once you have decided either thematically or broadly how you want to attack the space, talk me through how the manager selection process works in sustainable world. It is really the same process, you know, how we underwrite and, and do diligence on sustainable or impact managers. You have to start with the fundamentals in assessing the quality of the team and the organization, their investment process and their strategy, how consistent is it, right? How much work that have they really put in to define their thesis and validate that thesis over time. And of course, we look at the track record and the performance, right? Even if it's a very young firm, we have to see, are there early signals that their thesis is playing out the way they intended? And if not, how have they learned those lessons, like what we were talking about earlier, to achieve future success going forward? So it's fundamentally the same process. And when we go through a diligence process at Cambridge, really there isn't any visible difference 
between a sustainable manager and a more quote unquote traditional manager. And it's the same underwriting process, the same approval process. What I would say that we're trying to be a little bit more intentional about when engaging with sustainable managers is really probing them on the impact thesis and how they are both measuring and reporting on the impact. And let's just be real, right? Every investment that you make has some impact. And I think that what's really important for investors that invest in these impact funds and opportunities is you have to be really clear about what the impact thesis is, how the manager will be held accountable to achieving that outcome and reporting that over time. So I want to pull apart those two pieces. So the first, the kind of notion that this is more or less the same type of manager selection process. One of the differences I would think is that the space is let's call it newer compared to a traditional long-only equity investing that's been around forever. Where do you find a manager that has a track record in a space that hasn't really been around? We've been actually fortunate to find managers who have been tested through cycles and who have been able to layer in thoughtful sustainability lens. But of course, there are many more emerging managers as well, both in the public side, as well as in the private side. And of course, we're seeing some newcomers in the hedge fund arena as well. And for those, I would say that it's really probing them on their sector expertise, if they're investing in certain areas of the market. Are they really well networked in those particular industries to both source and add value to deals, right? Both pre-investment and post-investment, just like when we do diligence and assess any manager, right? With a little more limited track record. It's their ability to attract the best deals given their expertise and their networks. And given their specialization, their ability to really pull levers after they invest in a company to enhance the operational outcomes of that business. So in many ways, it is the same framework and the same tools, but you're right in that certainly there are many managers who are newer and we have to really dig in on their underlying capabilities and their sector theses. Do you find that these people grow up with this interest throughout their careers or is it something that they come to later on in their career? Some of it is they grow up, they find that there are these dire challenges facing the planet, facing society, and they have that mentality baked into their being, to their DNA, and they want to do everything in their power to create market-driven solution to address those challenges. Others perhaps come out of it through, let's say, traditional industry, through traditional investing, and they have come around to the fact that, wow, these are real systemic issues. And what I've been doing before as an entrepreneur, as an investor, as I look at the world going forward, right, some of those frameworks are less relevant or are not as current to the times that we are living in. And they're focusing further on these, again, real world solutions to these challenges. And so you see a combination. Some are channeling their existing mentalities and best practices, and others are coming at this fairly with a kind of new and enlightened sense of, well, we have to act now and we have to act urgently. And they're applying all their talent to go into it. What are the types of backgrounds that these managers are coming from that are entering the space? Yeah, it's really interesting. And it kind of goes into our sourcing for our platform at Cambridge Associates. I think one common theme we're seeing is well-established investment managers who spin out of larger platforms. And they are tackling a, let's say, a smaller cap part of the market. They're focused on a more inefficient part of the market. And they are taking their institutional investment approach and their knowledge base into that more targeted area. We're actually also seeing some, especially on the private side, some operationally focused managers who have spun out of industry, of strategics, and even some family offices who have been very active in certain areas like environmental sustainability and clean energy to start new funds focused on, let's say, 
resource efficiency or climate change technologies because they've been in, let's say, a large industrial organization trying to find innovative solutions. And with some of the bureaucracies that are inherent in the larger organizations, they found it challenging to implement, but in a smaller, more nimble format, they can actually execute and fulfill their theses in a much more effective way. So the second part of what you talked about was the importance of measuring impact. And one of the risks that comes up in this space are people that aren't really having an impact. And so we hear terms like greenwashing and more recently social washing. What are those terms? Yeah, so greenwashing and social washing are are very related in that it's really about putting on a facade of caring about these issues. And you may genuinely care about these issues, but may not know how to translate that intention into practice. So I think there are different shades of greenwashing. There's the one that is more, you know, just saying that, oh, this is a really strong growth area for the market and let's lean in, let's put some labeling on what we do, let's sign on to various platforms and memberships to signal that we are motivated by sustainability and an impact. But I think you have to look more deeply at what the firms and organizations are actually doing internally to understand, okay, are they actually changing their investment processes? Are they building up real organizational muscle memory to analyze and act on, again, what we were talking about earlier, these signals, right? Material risks and opportunities that could actually affect investment outcomes. And this process is a journey, right? Some firms are earlier in their evolution And I think you have to be transparent when you're talking to your clients and your investors on, hey, this is where we are, but this is where we intend to go. And that is perfectly fine and permissible. And we respect that. But I think it's different to say, this is our ESG strategy. And we put a lot of thought into it. And this is the way it's going to be for the foreseeable future. I think you have to keep an open mind and know that The whole industry is still pretty early and there are always more best practices to learn. And so I think that transparency is a big piece of how you differentiate the serious, intentional practitioners versus those who are really trying to put on a facade. What are the types of questions you would ask in that process to tease out whether the notion is translating into action? We, of course, ask managers if they have an ESG policy, how do they embed that policy into their process? But I think what's really more relevant when you're engaging with these managers is, okay, let's go through your portfolio and let's go through your holdings, right? How did you arrive at these decisions given you have this ESG policy? And sometimes you can call out some more blatant outliers where it's not really consistent with their policy and you have to probe them on why that is. And their rationale may be satisfactory, may not, but that's, I think, part of the process as an allocator is, again, understanding and pushing these managers on their ESG considerations. And I think getting through those case studies, okay, why they invested in the company for various ESG characteristics, and importantly, why they didn't invest in a certain company because of certain risk factors around environmental liabilities or workplace safety issues, for example, or certain governance risks, I think those are, again, really important questions that you have to ask for understanding how seriously uh, a manager is practicing their ESG policy. Okay. So you've started with a mission. We've identified a manager along the way, gone through the diligence process, hopefully screened out some of these greenwashers. And you mentioned, well, you start with a manager, find a great manager, and then another one. And the next thing you know, you have something. So over time, how do your clients fully integrate a longer-term strategy into their portfolios? It's an ongoing journey, and you have to have the end goal in sight, which is, okay, you're integrating sustainability into the whole portfolio, right, across all asset classes. Some asset classes may be harder to implement, like in hedge funds, where, frankly, we're not seeing as many offerings to date, but we're seeing some new products being formed and we're going to assess those. 
But you have to know that you start somewhere, you build upon it, and over time, you know that you're getting to a place where you can substantially measure and report on the ESG characteristics and the impact that your portfolio is having on the broader system. So I don't think it's a time period specific objective. I would say it's ongoing, it's in perpetuity, and you always have to adapt and iterate as you go. Does it start with a almost like a, a bucket, I don't know if you call it an asset class, but a portion of a public equity portfolio, a portion of a private equity portfolio that is either thematic-based or impact-based dedicated to these strategies. Is that the starting point that typically happens? It is one starting point, certainly, for several of our clients who have started with a carve-out allocation to impact investing where it's focused on certain themes, or it's just, just a general allocation to broad sustainability impact sectors. And of course, the risk to that is you never expand it because the committee or the organization feels like they've done something and that's sufficient. But you always have to push the envelope and ask the question, okay, what have we done here in this portfolio that has worked? And let's do more of that and expand that to the broader portfolio, because I do think there are many relevant lessons that can be drawn for the broader portfolio. And again, over time, graduate some of those managers into the broader portfolio and or take those networks and learnings and apply them to everything you do when you're assessing portfolio construction and manager selection. And I think that latter piece is less concrete perhaps, but it's also really important because it's about mindset. It's about framing the issues in a way that hopefully drives long-term returns. As you look across that whole portfolio, what are your views on the negative selection or screening out, say, coal companies compared to the positive impact investments? Yeah. Again, going back to the wider aperture point that I made earlier, I think if you have a belief that a certain part of the market is going to be fundamentally disrupted from an economic sense because of real economic and business transitions, because the cost of renewables and alternatives have come down, obviously you have natural gas disrupting the market for coal, and you have policies that have led to an energy transition as well globally. Taking that Fundamental economic view, I think, is the more long-term and sound approach to navigating right where you play in your portfolio, whether it's screening out certain things intentionally or leaning into other areas, growth-oriented areas of the market. So I think it is a tool, certainly, the negative screening, but it is certainly not a complete tool. And you have to combine it and use other tools at your disposal like proactive solutions-oriented investments, sector-focused investments, fully ESG-integrated managers to express your intention to integrate sustainability. As we walk through asset classes, so we've talked a little bit about public equity, and then private equity is broad. So where do you see these opportunities? Is it venture capital, traditional private equity, real assets? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just give you an example. We work with a foundation that has a climate change mitigation and resource efficiency mandate. And we've been able to help them build a diversified portfolio in the private markets that gives you exposure to broad, sustainable real assets. So infrastructure, cash flowing assets that are within the sustainability arena, like renewable infrastructure, EV charging infrastructure, certainly sustainable timber and agriculture, sustainable water assets, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of good ballast in that part of the portfolio because these are, again, cash flowing. These are typically resilient against macro shocks because your counterparties are utilities, investment grade corporates. So I think typically more stable in terms of profile. And then you layer in more of the corporate equity type of investments like early stage venture capital, growth equity, where you have more upside potential in capturing 
technological or business model innovations around, let's say, energy systems, transportation systems, food systems, and water systems. And again, it's having a diversified approach and knowing what each manager or investment, what their role is in the portfolio, I think it's really key. So I think that's the way we see in terms of portfolio construction. And then you go in into the each, each asset class and you find the most talented, most specialized and thoughtful managers that can execute against that strategy, whether it's one that's looking across the food and agribusiness value chain or one that's purely focused on expansion stage education, for example. I think you just have to look at the fundamentals and apply your bottom-up analysis. What are the different lenses that some of your clients think about holistically looking at their portfolio in this space? Yeah, let's just take climate change for an example. I think if you take a holistic view, climate change is a systemic risk, right, to portfolios, to our society, to the planet. And you have to look at the downside risks of climate change, whether it's the physical risk, extreme weather directly impacting our infrastructure, our real estate. It could certainly disrupt our supply chains over time. And it could certainly introduce more health risks, right, as vector-borne diseases spread because of climate change. And one way to think about this holistically is think about defense and offense against climate change. On the defensive side, understanding where those risks might appear in a portfolio, whether it's in your real estate portfolio, whether it's in your private equity portfolio or public equity portfolio, and really engaging with the managers to understand, number one, but also then to address and mitigate, number two. And how you mitigate is a combination of leading into the managers who are more thoughtful about these risk factors and embedding these risk factors into their decision-making. You can certainly, like what we talked about, screen away areas that you think are really fundamentally disrupted and at risk. Some clients are adopting that strategy. And I think more importantly, on the offensive side, you can really lean into proactive solutions, whether it's environmental energy efficiency, water and agriculture efficiency technologies, sustainable real assets, to find those opportunities that can help the transition to a lower carbon economy. And a lot of those opportunities are asset-based, and some of those opportunities are more innovation and business model driven. So taking a holistic approach, defense and offense, is the way we think about it in building climate resilient portfolios. Of all of these potential opportunities, what are your favorite themes in the space today for the next bunch of years? Yeah, so I think what this current and tragic health crisis is teaching me and and informing me is that we really need to think about long-term resilient portfolios, right? In all its dimensions. You need to think about building climate resilient portfolios against physical and transition risks from climate change. You need to build socially resilient portfolios, meaning if we have widespread and acute social inequality, that's just going to lead to reduce social cohesion, you have more social unrest, and that's really value eroding for everyone in the system. And so what this current crisis is informing me is that, okay, let's take supply chain disruptions that we're seeing across the global economy right now. How do you find opportunities that layer in more resilience on our supply chains, right? There are so many interdependencies the way we operate in the global economy, that I think there are innovative models of distributed infrastructure, manufacturing, real-time more flexible manufacturing, whether it's 3D printing, for example, or flexible capacity manufacturing to de-risk. Obviously, you can't de-risk the whole system, but in certain parts of the supply chain, de-risk so that you are more resilient as a society and as an economy. And similarly, when you think about all the labor disruption that is happening right now, but also over the longer time period with globalization, with technological disruption, you need to think about how do you reskill and upskill the laborers and workers who are now unemployed or who are underemployed 
relative to their potential. And I think there are real opportunities there in the education and workforce development area to help those stakeholders, again, move up the skills curve and be more in demand for their work in the global economy of the 21st century. So those are a couple of areas that I'm really excited about in the current environment. If we drill down on each of those, so let's just start on the environmental side. You mentioned the sort of the physical and the transition assets. And I guess some of the supply chain disruption can fit into that. But where do you see the most exciting or interesting opportunities? Let's just start on the physical side. Yeah. So physical side of climate change, we're looking at distributed infrastructure, whether it's obviously renewable infrastructure, distributed food production in the form of advanced greenhouses, for example, where you have, again, less dependency on a broader system, more local logistics in terms of serving local demand. We're seeing some really interesting opportunities in water technologies, as you see the Flint, Michigan disaster, you see kind of the scarcity of of water in emerging markets, economies. So technologies and business models that can really reduce the pain points of producing and delivering water to those in need of it. And how about on the transition side? So, you know, we hear a lot, obviously we started talking about coal, coal into clean fuels. Where have been the most interesting investment opportunities in transition? One area that we're seeing is a lot of folks have focused on EVs and EV charging, which I think is certainly an area to look at. It's a market that's going down in in terms of cost and pricing as more players come in. So I think what's more interesting in that area is the software systems that can integrate more EV charging capacity with the grid and taking on the intermittent renewable resources that will be coming online and managing the flow of electrons right between the electric grid and then the more intermittent renewable power sources and EV charging sources. I think there's some real value there to be able to connect those systems such that we have a more resilient grid system and also a more sustainable energy supply chain. When we cross over into the social, and you you mentioned this sort of socioeconomic gap, this widening inequality, retraining education, workforce, we are coming through this dramatic sudden stop in the economy. Where do you think there will be investment returns that come out of this need to balance out the inequality in the country? It's hard to imagine what the world looks like after we get through this really challenging period. We need to get tens of millions of Americans back to work and not just back to work earning a paycheck, but also doing work that is, again, fitting of their skill sets and fitting the demands of the modern economy. And that transition will likely take some time, right? You need to be able to retrain and reskill millions of American workers, and obviously those outside the U.S. as well, to jobs that are, let's say, in the technology sector, in the healthcare sector, in broader services sectors that still have demand and long-term relevance. So I think there will be some short-term pain as we go through this transition. But I think if you're intentional as an investor and looking for, again, innovative models to deliver the training, the skill sets, but also to place the retrained workers into the global economy, I think those are some compelling and promising areas to be looking into. So much of this space just feels good to talk about. It feels like we're going to move in a great direction, but there's always investment risk. And I wonder if you could start by talking about the most notable investment risk in this space, which was sort of the clean tech movement back, I don't know, 10 years ago now, and what happened with that? So on the clean tech story and experience, we all know that leading up to the financial crisis, there was a boom and bust of clean tech that a lot of investors and allocators experienced. There's still a lot of pain and scar tissue from that experience. And a lot of times we have 
clients who bring that up and say, this is why we haven't leaned into the sector more because we've all learned really painful lessons from that time period. And just to distill it down, I think what happened there was there was certainly a lot of overhype, capital flowing in, especially by firms who may not have really developed the deep expertise on the sector. They may have developed expertise in semiconductors or software, but seeing this opportunity at the time, I think their skill sets, especially some of the venture cap, early stage venture capital investors, didn't quite appreciate the capital intensity, the commodity risks of the sector, and were pursuing opportunities that were really outside their sweet spot both stage and sector expertise. And of course, that led to underperformance. And it was coupled by both the macroeconomic shock during the time, but also the shale revolution and the cheaper natural gas prices that competed with alternative fuels. So it was a confluence of different events, of different factors that led to disappointing returns in the mid to late 2000s. But what we have seen since really 2012, 2013, and we track this data at the company level in our database of venture and private equity backed clean tech companies, they've actually rebounded quite significantly since 2013, where if you look at the IRRs and the TVPIs of these clean tech sectors since that period, they've actually held up really well, both on an absolute basis, as well as on a relative basis compared to our global venture and private equity universe. And I think what's reflected in those improved numbers is, well, one, solar and wind costs have come down dramatically over the past decade. I think for wind, it's about 70% over the last decade. For solar, it's about 90% cost declines. So your inputs and your components have just gotten a lot cheaper. You can build projects much more cheaper, and the economics of those projects are more favorable. But also, I think on the value chain side, there are just some really interesting and innovative business models that are being applied to these sectors. Some of the examples I shared earlier, you know, taking software to embed into a hardware system, right, like of EV charging stations and renewable projects to manage the flow, right, it's still a software business that is serving a very stable customer base, the utility, and that's recurring revenue. And it's actually done quite well, those types of businesses. And in general, I think the cost of computational power, the cost of storage from a data perspective, right? All of those technological gains and efficiencies have led to, I would say, more favorable substrate for entrepreneurs operating these sectors today to build real businesses that can sustain themselves both from an impact perspective, but also from a financial perspective. So as you lay out the risk factors today on some of these investments you make, what are the key components to risk? So as with any investment, you have to focus on the team, their ability to execute on their strategy. And we have to do a lot of reference calls to understand how they operate in a boardroom, how they work with management teams outside the boardroom. Do they really add value? Do they really know the ins and outs of the industries that they're investing in. And then secondly, I would say the risk around market adoption and that broader economic piece, you have to factor in cyclicality when you're looking into sectors such as food and agribusiness, right? There are certain parts of the supply chain there that are less cyclical, perhaps the staples, whereas others like in perhaps branded sustainable consumer products it may be more subject to the whims of the consumer and have pricing competition from newer players. And you have to focus on the supply and demand of capital, right? There may be a lot of money coming in to alternative proteins at the moment because of the recent successes of certain companies in that space. And while we still see the long-term structural opportunities there, you have to be very selective in what are the enduring technologies and, and models that still align with this theme, but are not going to get eroded away by the heavy competition. And whenever we think about risk, there's always the risks that you don't think of. Certainly the health crisis is something nobody's thought of. What are some of the things that you've thought of as risks that you think someone outside of the space might not appreciate? We have to view everything in a systems lens. And 
to my earlier point about supply chain resilience, you may have opportunities that you are quite excited by in the, let's say, warehouse automation theme or fulfillment of deliveries and logistics, right? That could increase your energy efficiency in the supply chain, could actually decrease health risk because it takes humans out of the chain or more so. But then it just means fewer laborers, right? And you have, you're accelerating the transition for automation and technological disruption. And that's obviously affecting labor markets. So when you're investing in a portfolio of these themes, you have to also connect the dots of how one area may affect another. And look, in investing, everything is interconnected and you have to be able to intentionally craft strategies that solve for all of those interdependencies. So then you have to look at workforce development and retraining. You can't solve every problem with one investment. You have to be very systematic and thoughtful. So you focus on the sustainable part of Cambridge and those clients that are interested in that. How does your work permeate across the rest of Cambridge's investment activities? Yeah, absolutely. We are seeing the mainstreaming effect of this whole area from sustainability to ESG integration to impact investing. And I'll just give you an example, right? Because we are allocators. We have a unique and differentiated position to engage with all managers, not just though those who self-identify as ESG or sustainability managers, but any type of manager who are working on their ESG integration efforts to apply this, what I called earlier, this kind of wide angle lens to their investment approach. And if they're not doing so intentionally already, we are in the position to advocate and engage with them on these practices, just like with certain managers, right, that are engaging with their portfolio companies on more sustainable operating and governance practices. We think that there is a strong opportunity for allocators to be engaging with all of their managers on sustainability, on ESG integration, on team diversity, and especially for public equity firms, right, how their practices and policies are reflected in their actual day-to-day implementation. For example, with proxy voting records, are they consistent with what they said they would do? And to be mindful of not just the transparency, but the continuous improvement of all these areas. And I think there is a two-way conversation many times, and managers will often ask us for our advice and best practices as they are getting up to speed on sustainability and ESG integration. So I think it is our responsibility as allocators to just have those conversations and engage with them so that the whole industry develops in a prudent manner. How do you actually do that when there are so many managers to meet with and across the platform? You have to do it systematically. And part of it is in your quarterly or biannual conversations that you have anyway with managers. And sometimes these issues come up in a portfolio with, for example, workplace safety issues, governance issues, certainly carbon footprint is always a conversation that people are having in the context of this environment and in a world faced with climate change and transition risk. So I think there are natural places to have those conversations in your regular dialogue, but you do need to be intentional and proactive as well. And sometimes managers will be very receptive to, again, having those conversations in between your regular touch points. And especially if you are reaching out and saying, hey, I, I saw that you invested in this position. Let's talk about it. Let's think through how you got to that thesis and got to that position. And through that course of the conversation, you can have conversations about ESG, integration, and sustainability. Where do you see resistance to address some of the things that are important to, say, your clients that normally are focused in your particular practice area? Certainly, some managers are not just ready, not quite ready to have that conversation. And so they will sometimes say, oh, we don't think about that, or we think about it in a different way. And again, it's a two-week conversation. And as allocators, you have to push the materiality piece and how this impacts for example, your revenues or your cost structure or your broader kind of stakeholder effects. So 
again, tying it to the financials, tying it to the economics, the fundamental economics statements are really important when you're having these conversations, because otherwise we're going back to that greenwashing topic again. And it's not just about the window dressing and putting on some reports and metrics. It is about the protection and the creation of value over the long term. And if you're really trying to make somewhat of a long-term transformative change, where does the kind of rubber meet the road when one of the people on the Cambridge team broadly is supporting a manager that through your lens, you would say they're really falling short on the sustainable investment principles that you behold? We have a cross-team approach where we have to look at managers holistically and Certainly, there are managers who are getting up to speed and up to curve, and we really have to actively engage both internally and externally. And some managers who may a few years ago not have been willing to have those conversations now are very willing to listen to us and hear us out, again, because it ties back into prudent long-term risk management and value creation. And I think there has been a lot of progress that has been made over the last few years in terms of really applying the lens to material risk factors and opportunity areas that can drive alpha. And what happens when there's a super high performing manager? By all metrics, everyone would agree, maybe they're even closed or close to closed. And it's pretty clear that they just don't care about the sustainable lens. Certainly there are instances where that happens. And we have to be persistent, right? We have to make the argument again and again that there are areas in the market, areas in certain sectors and areas in prudent governance that do matter, that you have to apply and integrate. And over time, we can be a broken record on these things, but we will be persistent and we will ask for information and we will, again, ask for improvement on not just the policies, but the integration of the policies into day-to-day decision-making. And that is not just with the self-branded and self-defined sustainability or ESG managers, but with all managers, as I said before. Yeah. And particularly the non-branded managers, how do you handle a situation where there's a manager that's just so good that clients want to have their money with them? even though you know they are just not going to entertain this conversation as far as the eye can see? There will be challenges, of course. And I think that every few months, we see another manager kind of flip the switch and become more receptive. But you're absolutely right, Ted, that the whole industry is still learning this craft and institutionalizing these practices in a way that makes sense for the long term. We at Cambridge do take the long-term view, and we know that we have a position in the market to help the whole industry institutionalize and move up the curve. Let's turn to some closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So before the age of parenting and pandemics, I was actually in a choir for a number of years, both in college as well as after grad school. And I just love the community aspect of it and making music, harmony, this is a classical choir, and just being elevated even for an hour or two hours every week with people who are all there to sharing each other's company and the community. Of course, apparently seeing a choir is one of the most risky activities in a COVID pandemic. So that's not happening these days, but it is really one of my favorite activities. And that's actually how I met my wife was singing in a college choir. What's your biggest pet peeve? I would say two things and they're related. Not cleaning up after your own mess and not taking ownership of your mess or mistakes. So I really try to enforce this sometimes successfully, sometimes very unsuccessfully at home with my four-year-old. And how about your biggest investment pet peeve? I would say it's the same not cleaning up after your own mess and not owning up to your mistakes. Look, I think really trying to relate this to our earlier discussion, right? So much of the sustainability and impact arena is around recognizing externalities, both positive and negative. And for the market 
operators and players who have generated any negative externalities, it's really important to recognize it and help clean it up. And I think investors have to hold the companies accountable because it affects everyone at the systems level. And owning to mistakes, right? I think everyone from the allocator perspective knows that you want managers to be transparent about their mistakes and own up to the failures as well as take credit for the successes. And I think it's not doing anyone a service when they're hiding their mistakes and just touting their successes. What do you do for self-growth? Aside from listening to this very good show, I would say it's actually parenting. I have a four-year-old son, and I'm not talking about the moments where you're kind of playing with him and tuned out. You know what I'm talking about, those with kids, but it's really active parenting where you're listening, you're being patient, you're trying to be a better teacher. I think you learn a lot about yourself in the process and again, learn how to be a better person and better listener. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So when I was little, I was very shy. I still am pretty shy. My parents would always push me to go up to strangers and ask for directions, for example, if we're out on a trip and we can't find our way. This is before the age of Google Maps, obviously. And I was always hesitant, but they always made a point of getting me outside my comfort zone and asking for help. And I think that stayed with me because over the course of my career, I have not been shy or hesitant to seek mentorship and seek help whenever I needed it. And I've been so fortunate to have had so many great colleagues, both current and former, who have guided me along the way, shared best practices and and lessons learned. And I think it's a big part of why I'm in the very fortunate position of being at Cambridge Associates, heading up our impact investing research efforts. Last one, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? There are many, but I would say that I have learned to be more mindful of the decisions that I make and be able to fully articulate and communicate the full motivation and rationale of of those decisions. Whereas I think earlier in my life, in my career, I would trust my judgment and go with my gut feeling in making a decision and not be able to communicate why I made that decision very clearly, whether it's a personal family or professional decision. And I think over time, just trying to be more mindful and aware of all the different layers that go into making a decision, big or small, and be able to communicate that to people I care about who might be affected by that decision. Mishan, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Ted. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.